As we approach the end of the tax year, clients inevitably kickstart their tax planning. Perhaps we really wish they would do this a bit earlier, but let's face it, getting to grips with tax isn't the easiest thing for most people to to grapple with. Even people in financial services, such as journalists like myself, Simoni Kuriaku, um, struggle with uh, a lot of the more complicated uh, tax planning aspects. So this FT Advisor in Focus podcast is going to look at the language of tax. We're going to look at reliefs and duties and how we can help people keep more of the pound in their pocket, as well as financial services more broadly. Bearing in mind, we need to be aware of people's vulnerabilities and a lack of understanding when it comes to the jargon we use within financial services. We're going to look at whether the tax system is too complicated, uh, what the OTS is doing to simplify it, and how we can make what appear to be complicated financial terms much more user-friendly and helpful for people, whether they're starting their own business or buying a house or just want to get to grips with their pensions and uh, invest more tax effectively. So, not much then to cover in, in a few minutes here, but joining me are three experts from across the range of financial services. We have Peter Glancy, he's Head of Policy, Pensions and Investments for Scottish Widows. We have Martin Stewart, co-founder of The Money Group. And we have Sarah Saunders, manager at RSM. Welcome all. Good morning. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. So, uh, Sarah, can I uh, can I start with you? Why are concepts such as tax uh, so confusing? Is it just the the nature of the beast, or have we just couched these conversations in too much jargon and acronyms that people are preconditioned to think that tax is complicated? I think there's a combination of problems. One is that there isn't really education provided in schools, even for simple things like understanding the PAY coding. So that people just have to accept that it's right. And they tend to with the revenue if they can. The tax legislation itself is immensely complicated. So that what people think is a simple question very rarely is. And because we are so deep in it, sometimes we forget that people don't know what we mean if we use something, a word that we use all the time. It's particularly noticeable if you're training new graduates to a learning tax, you suddenly realise that you have to stop and say, do you actually know what I'm talking about? And they usually go, no. So it's at that point you realise that people who aren't in tax, the vocabulary is much smaller than you probably think it is. Absolutely. And Martin, when you're speaking to clients, do you sometimes have to go back and really pare down your language to, to try and explain what these, these things mean to them? Yeah, I, I think I think we should all be doing that. And Sarah made some really interesting points there. I think there is, uh, and I've had this conversation a number of times, not just about tax, but financial services as a whole, that those that work in it have forgotten what it's like to be a consumer because it is our day job. So we sit there and we talk this language as though it's, it's just common English, when the reality is the consumer. And the reason why they're not engaged that much with it is because they're not really that interested. And this goes into pensions and it goes into savings and investments and stuff like that. They, they come into it once or twice a year, reluctantly, uh, and therefore they disengage with it. So, yeah, there is, a, there is an issue that sometimes Stockholm Syndrome, we think that everyone knows what we know, when the reality is that's probably not the case. Mm, absolutely. And, and Peter, we have this issue, particularly in pensions, don't we? Because there are so many different tax treatments that that we have to look at and I know from doing our own CPD that you know one one week we'll be looking at the MPAA and the the next bit we'll be looking at um, the the LTA and then we have to think well wait a minute let's even stop using these these acronyms that spill it out what does it actually really mean so it's a complicated thing isn't it pensions and taxation 
It's very complicated, and I, I think deliberately so. Um, the, the, the government, any government, whether it's a Labour government or Conservative government, will normally take between 35 and 40% of earnings as tax. But if you were to take that off someone's salary, you know, the, 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 the population wouldn't be, you know, endearing themselves towards that, that, that government. So the government deliberately has a lot of different, uh, quite opaque taxes, quite op uh, complicated taxes. And the, and the idea there is that people really don't notice how much the total tax take is. So it is designed to be complicated. The government also tends to try to do two other things with tax. It tries to nudge people to do things that it wants them to do. So pensions tax relief that you mentioned is there to encourage people to put money away, not spend it today, but spend it in the future when they retire. And then some governments uh, look, look at tax as a means of redistribution. And what we've had here is decades and decades of different governments layering on all of these different taxes. And then the industry, financial advisors, product providers like ourselves have to try and explain this to people. And it is tough. Yeah, I mean, the language, Peter, can be very uh, impenetrable to the end user. Do you think that if we dumb it down too much, we run the risk perhaps of oversimplifying it and perhaps creating even more confusion? I think because, because some of these tax measures and allowances have a particular relevance and importance to financial advice and guidance, you actually have to use the actual name that the government has given to that allowance to avoid any confusion. You can try and, and use metaphors and, and examples to try and get people to understand what that allowance does, and what it's intended to do. But I think you do have to give, use the names that have been given by the government just to avoid any confusion. Yeah, Sarah, can I come back to you here, um, whether it's with clients or whether, you know, as you say, training graduates, how do you make that balance between simplifying it and putting things into plain English and perhaps, you know, making sure that you still show the technicalities and make sure that people really understand how these things work? I think the main way we do it is by trying to make sure we understand their background in the first place so that we don't have to give them all of the options because somebody will ask a question they think is a yes, no question. And actually, the answer is almost what number do you want? Because there are so many different things you have to consider. And so we would normally find someone asks this question and we go back and get more specifics so we can try and narrow down the options. So we're not just having to give them a, an essay about that particular kind of tax, which will, they won't read. And they won't understand, and I don't blame them. Mm. Martin, how do you go about explaining things to clients? I mean, do you provide additional information to them or direct them to sort of helpful guides on the internet? Or perhaps you have your own uh, helpful guides? Uh, very simply, uh, simply, I delegate, which is probably my greatest skill set. Um, <laughs> I've made I've made a point very, very early on, and and this I push this out within 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 the money group is don't ski off piece. You know, if it's not your area of expertise, if you haven't got the PI cover in place to protect you going forward, don't engage in the conversation. Even even a flippant throw. You know, the worst question we can get from a client is, "What do you think?" Because mm. that's got that's just a can of worms written all over it. So you know, um, and it's very easy to go. Well, you know, you might have to pay some CGT there, or yes, I think you probably you know will incur the three percent additional stamp duty charge. Well, you know, at the moment you put that in writing, you've basically created a smoking gun for yourself. So I think what what we need to do as an industry is just compartmentalise you know our skill sets. So if anyone comes to me, I will refer them to an IFA, our internal one or an external one for a specialised advice or a qualified tax accountant and just make sure that the consumer gets the right advice from the get-go. Mm. I found that whenever I've spoken to uh, Americans, I mean, I remember four years ago I had a, a meeting with a very prominent um, American fund manager 
And he, he said to, to myself and the PR that was in attendance, oh, well, you know, well, it's the same thing when you guys do your tax returns every year. And we look at him, he said, oh, we don't do it. He said, what do you mean you don't do it? Don't you pay tax? Well, yeah, but most people, unless they're freelance or self-employed, don't actually have to do a tax return. And he was absolutely, he said, so what do you do with all your receipts? What do you do with all your bills? We were like, burn them, throw them, put them, in, <laughs> put them in, the, in the garbage. And he was absolutely shocked. He could not believe that British people did not do tax returns. And he's, he made the point that if you're kind of forced to learn about these things, as soon as you start work or as soon as you sort of hit 18, 21, you're a bit more financially savvy. I mean, is, is there a case for us just, you know, maybe when people get a, a job in the UK and they get their first pay slip, sitting down with them, someone in HR just explains to them what all these little sort of tax cum, NI, um, all this kind of uh, stuff, all these abbreviations mean on, on, on the on the pay slip. Would, would that be helpful? Um, that would probably be helpful. I can't imagine. And um, one major problem would be that the person in HR probably wouldn't understand their pay slip either. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would personally say it's something that should be dealt with in schools as part of a general financial education thing because there are so many things that people don't learn that one assumes they would know, but it depends on your background. Understanding how PAE works, works is very important because it runs how much tax the government gets off you, but so many people will assume the government have done it right because it's the revenue and they must be right. Oh, yes, that's true. We, we trust in authorities, don't we, Martin? Oh, implicitly, Simony. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt, he says uh, in inverted commas. Uh, but I think, I, think, I think Sarah's correct there, that there is a huge educational piece regarding personal finance that needs to be driven from secondary education onwards so that they're coming into the grown-up world knowing a huge amount about how banks operate, how governments operate, taxation, the importance of saving early on, the importance of not getting into too much debt. All this is its all part of a wider initiative, I think, that the industry could get behind. Mm. Peter, can, can we come to you and talk about uh, education? You know, should it start in schools, in the home? How young should money education start, perhaps? I think it should start at school. There was an initiative being run over the last three or four years by a body called Tizer, uh, and they were working with a number of schools uh, to pilot uh, educating people on, on, on personal finance in, in the school, and that was relatively successful. And then we have the new money and pension service, which is bringing together, as we know, the money advice service, PensionWise, and the pensions advisory service. And it will be launching its plans in around about March or April time, the activities it's going to undertake for the next three years. And the government has given that body a target to increase by 2 million people. 2 million young people need to come out of school between now and 2030 with a much better capability to manage their personal finances. So I think, I think we'll take the learning from the TISA pilots and then the government will sponsor a scheme to see this rolled out across schools much more, more broadly over the next two or three years. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, absolutely, because it is the it's in the government's best interest for people to understand tax and savings and to make the most of all the tax uh, efficient investment opportunities that are out there. Martin, how how good are your clients at getting um, organised earlier on in the year, or or do they just come to you on sort of March the twenty fifth and say, "Hi, I'd like to uh, invest in loads of VCTs, please." <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm, going to, I'm going to use myself as that example, Simony, and I'm probably the worst. I'm probably the least organised when it comes to taxation. You know, my accountant regularly emails me in September 
Um, and says, don't forget, we need your, yeah, all right, you know, 31st of January. And I guarantee you on the 30th of January, I'm the one that's emailing. So sorry, it's late. Hope it's, hope I'm going to get this in time. So, you know, I can't, I can't blame the consumer because often the professionals themselves aren't much better. And I learned that early on when I read a statistic that 60% of solicitors don't have, have a will themselves. So, you know, sometimes the, the, the teachers know better than, than the pupil. Um, and we are, you know, we're quick to not criticise, but highlight that the consumer isn't very switched on and doesn't keep up to date with this when I don't think we're really helping themselves either. And this, I think Peter made the point earlier on that, you know, this isn't necessarily a consumer problem. It's the fact that governments have, have for decades layered tax legislation upon broken tax legislation ad infinitum and there's so i think there's a different hundred different types of taxation out there which i I mean i could probably come up with five so god knows what the other 95 are and you know so it's not the consumer's fault we've created this environment that they they find very very confusing and so do a lot of professionals as well Mm, absolutely. And it might be, be getting even more complicated, you know, post-Brexit. But uh, we, we don't quite know what, what the government's going to say in a, in a couple of weeks' time. I mean, as much as they, they like to leak things to the to the press b- b- beforehand. But are we hopeful of seeing any more simplifications, Sarah? Do you think that perhaps the OTS's recommendations for things such as, you know, simplifying CGT, is, is that likely to happen and try and get rid of some of these excessive layers upon layers? It's often the case that we hear a lot of talk about simplification. I have to admit, in the past, most of the time when they've said they were simplifying something, it has actually turned out to be incredibly complicated mm-hmm. with transitional rules. So if you say simplification to a tax advisor, we go rather pale. <laughs> um, there are so many possible options for CGT particularly, depending on what you want to have coming out the other end. It's, it will be interesting to see what they do, bearing in mind the state of the economy, whether they want to majorly shake up the government shake up cgt every i don't know five ten years anyway same as pensions administration you just learn the rules and then they change everything again and the more you're in tax the more you think it starts to get a bit irritating Um, Peter, in terms of pensions, I, I know that every uh, every time there's there's a budget or a spring statement, the whole pensions industry holds its breath and crosses its fingers and says, please, please, please don't do anything unless you're going to uh, raise the IHT uh, threshold, in which case, thank you very much. Um, <laughs> is, is, is that still the case? Are we, are we still kind of hoping that the government will leave pensions alone? I think we have to be realistic. Um, the, the, the country is carrying an unprecedented amount of debt. Uh, we're not through the, the the health crisis, let alone a subsequent economic crisis yet. And then we've still got to pay for helping Britain build back better. So I, I think that the government will start to look at some radical changes to pensions. I think in this budget, we may see some tweaks. The Chancellor can throw a few tweaks and he'll get his, he'll get his budget passed by the, by the House of Parliament, etc. But we may see him start to announce some directions of travel in terms of some more radical reform. I don't think we'll see radical reform because you need to work through the consequences of it. But I, if there is to be radical reform, I think you should you should do it once and for all and greatly simplify the pensions landscape. If, if you look at ISAs, there's a single rule for ISAs. You can put up to £20,000 and it's free from capital gains. When it comes to pensions, the amount of rules Martin was touching on them there, they're unfathomable. You know, you, you can't possibly talk to a client or, or a customer about them. We need to get pensions to be as simple as ISAs when it comes to the tax framework. 
True, but Peter, don't forget, um, <laughs> the government does like to throw pensions wobblies, as it did in 2014 when uh, uh, Osborne has famously said, well, no one will ever have to buy an annuity again. And now look where that's got us six and a half years on, pension scams galore. Um, <laughs> do you think the government have perhaps learned its lesson about not bringing in sweeping changes with no time to properly enshrine legislation? George Osborne was, a, was an unusual politician and that he's probably the only significant politician of senior office that didn't consult before he he threw things out into the world. He was noted for that. Now, it may have been a consequence that he's number two at the Treasury. Danny Alexander was a Lib Dem and there may have been some some requirement to have some secrecy before they announced things. But he, he was unique, I think. Or hopefully we don't see any more senior politicians throwing things into the industry without proper consultation because you do get unintended consequences, as, as we've seen. Yeah, absolutely. Martin sort of uh, nodding and both Sarah and Martin are nodding there. Martin, do you hope for no unintended consequences this this budget? Well, we can, we can all hope for that. I think the reality is we're going to get it whether we want it or not. That seems to be the case. Unintended consequences is the is, is the smoking gun all the time. You, see, you come up with a great idea, fantastic. And this is this is why we've got all this layered legislation, taxation. Go, yeah, this was a great idea 30 years ago. It'll still be fine in 30 years' time. The reality is that life and demographics move much faster than legislation. Uh, because of that, our, our tax rules are always playing catch up with where, we, where, where we're living today. So there will be, it doesn't matter how much forethought goes into it, I hope there is a lot, there is going to be unintended consequences. And, and often the way is it's not so much what we can remember, it's what we've forgotten. That's where the issue is, that someone can go, I think if I do this, <clears throat> and you forget that actually that might be caught by something from some time ago, which is why the pensions is complicated and the consumer needs really, really good advice. And, and thankfully, you know, as an ex-IFA myself, the quality of IFA and education within, within the IFA sector has exponentially risen significantly since RDR, which I think is great news all around for the consumer. But the risk with that is it suddenly becomes, is it too expensive to gain that advice? Whereas the advice gap is something that, you know, where do people go to now to get complex pension advice at an affordable price? What can financial services uh, professionals, whether advisors, providers, etc., do to make financial services more accessible, to make it easier for people to, to invest or, or, or have decent pensions? What, what can you do outside of this or within this legislative environment? Because um, we can't change that. But what, what can we do? I think we really need to dumb it down. But, and that's not in a negative way. You know, look at the language. That Language is so important. I'm a huge fan of words and, and how, how we deploy words can have a massive effect on, on things going forward. We've certainly learned that over the past four or five years. So um, I think we do need to dumb it down, but in a positive way. Peter made a really good point earlier on that you can put £20,000 into an ISA um, and that's that's free from capital gains tax very straightforward. But to do the same kind of investment into a pension, it's a you know a, a domino of, of legislation and regulation and complication that comes with it. So I think we could just simplify everything for the consumer because what we need to do is start to create habits. And the sooner you start to create good habits, the, the easier and the better things come for, for everybody. So start with some really basic, low-level legislation that helps people begin to save and begin to see the benefit of saving. Peter, I'll, I'll, I'll go to you, Peter, and then I'll, I'll go to Sarah. So what, what can you do as, as a provider to help make financial services more accessible? Well, I, I'll go back to the point you made a second ago. I don't, I don't think we should take it for granted that we have to live with the regulation and legislation. 
the, the Financial Conduct Authority at the moment is conducting a review of the Consumer Investments Market Review, and it's looking specifically at this advice gap. And we as providers are inputting to that review, and we're hopeful that we'll get some solutions to help close the gap. Two of the things that we can do is we can, we can modify guidance. Guidance is where you give the consumer information that they make a decision. What the customer are telling us is that they want an expert to tell them what to do, which means a personal recommendation. So the Financial Conduct Authority is trying to see, is there a way that we can give a personal recommendation to someone without it being expensive advice that they have to pay for? The second thing they're looking at is, you know, as Martin said, advice is very expensive. It can cost you, you know, 1500 to 2000 pounds, even for very, you know, limited advice. We need to get that down to about 50 pounds or 100 pounds for it to be accessible. And the, the FCA are also looking at different ideas in terms of how we might be able to help people with some basic everyday questions that they have that are really, really important to managing their financial futures, uh, but at a much more affordable price. And we as an industry need to, at this point in time, be putting those ideas and making sure that we get a good outcome from this. We can't, we can't come out of this with, a, with the advice gap continuing for another decade. Hmm, absolutely. They're very, very true words there. Uh, Sarah, over to you, please. I think we sort of have two levels of people in the tax side. We have the fairly wealthy people who can afford to get some kind of professional advice. But then there are all the other sort of normal people who don't really aren't very financial. And they often don't have any idea what's going on or relying on revenue guidance. And those are the people that need the most help and support. As a firm, I don't think we can do a lot, but there are committed professionals in tax charities and things that will help people. But it really is down to education in the first place, because a lot of it, like tax, I mean, tax coding is a classic example. If that's wrong, it can really mess you up. Most people don't know enough to check it. Just teaching them that would probably save a lot of people. And there are two million people who apparently they believe have not claimed a marriage allowance, which shows a total lack of communication. It's things like that. At that level, those are the people that probably are really being damaged by their lack of understanding. Absolutely. These are these are really key points. I'm afraid, sadly, this is all we, we've got time for, but we could talk about this forever. I'm absolutely in agreement with, with Sarah. We do need to, as an industry, push an education agenda so that people do understand how to read payslips. They do understand their PAYE coding. They do understand what tax reliefs and allowances they can claim. And that sort of works for people taking pensions and drawdown as much as it does for people just starting out in the workplace. Martin's obviously uh, obviously right. Don't talk about what you don't know. Be able to sort of delegate or refer things to professional connections that might be able to help with some more complicated matters. Um, that That's also very important for the advisor's audit trail. And Pete sort of hit it on the head as well, just trying to get more legislative awareness of, of the need for simplification, of the need for better education and of the need just to treat customers fairly. So let's let's hope that, uh, well, we don't know what Mr. Sunak's going to say, but we do hope very much that we will get some uh, good guidance. And going forward, maybe people will be a little bit more tax savvy, a little bit more financial savvy, and perhaps we'll have a much more educated consumer in the future. Um, who knows? We, we can but dream. All right, Martin, Sarah and Pete, thank you very much for joining me. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, take care. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan 
turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.